Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 8, A Scandalously Short History of the Gilded Age. Hello again, and Happy New Year. I hope you all had a good and restful holiday. You're probably noticing by now that, well, there hasn't been an episode in a while. I know you've noticed, in fact, since a number of you have reached out via Facebook or over email to say, Hey, like the show, when will there be more? Remember way back in episode zero when I said I wanted to have enough episodes in the can so that if life got in the way, I'd have enough lead time to avoid long breaks between episodes because I hate when my favorite podcasts have long breaks between episodes? Yeah, well... I thought seven episodes would be enough runway. Guess I should have gone for like ten, maybe? Simply put, late November and all of December were just nuts with real life and the day job. Throw Christmas into the mix and, well, maybe I should have had fifteen. Anyway, back now. No need to fear the dreaded pod fade. I'm in this one for the long haul and looking forward to producing new episodes on a regular schedule again. Thanks for your patience. So last time, way back when, we watched Tesla fulfill his dream to meet Thomas Edison in the hopes of pitching him on AC power and the induction motor. We also watched as the whole thing went down in flames after Tesla felt cheated out of the equivalent of a million dollar promise. Goodbye to the Edison machine works, he scrawled bitterly in his journal at the end of 1884. And then, turning the page to 1885, he started making notes for his own company. It didn't take Tesla long to get his new business going. In March 1885, Tesla met with the well-known patent attorney Lemuel Serrell, a former agent of Edison's. And with his help, by the end of that same month, Tesla applied for his first patent. U.S. patent number 335786, for those of you keeping score at home an improved design of the arc lamp, which created a uniform light and prevented flickering. Through Sorrell, Tesla got to know B.A. Vale and Robert Lane, two businessmen from New Jersey who expressed an interest in AC motors. In December 1885, Vale, Lane, and Tesla organized the Tesla Electric Light and Manufacturing Company in Rahway, New Jersey. Temporarily thrilled with the new company that bore his name, Tesla was about to receive a second harsh lesson in the bare-knuckle world of American capitalism and industry in the late 19th century. But that'll have to wait a couple of weeks. Because this week, I'd like to take a step back from Tesla himself to talk a little bit about the world and the era he was stepping boldly into, the Gilded Age in America. Because this is the Life and Times podcast, after all. The Gilded Age is a massive topic to try and sum up in our usual 30 minutes, and as you can probably already tell, I wasn't able to. Despite the length of this episode, we may still end up doing a few more podcasts about this era as we go, since certain aspects of this period are especially relevant to the story of Tesla, particularly at the height of his fame in the 1890s, when he traveled in the circles of New York High Society, and was friends and acquaintances with that time period's 1%. So, for today, 
let's try a whirlwind, scandalously short history of the Gilded Age. We'll define its period in time, talk about some of the big themes of this era, and how it forever changed the United States. And truthfully, before I started researching Tesla in a serious way, I didn't know that much about the period we've come to call the Gilded Age. But now that I do, I find I'm absolutely fascinated by the similarities of American life in our own times and that of America in the late 19th century. Vast and rising wealth inequality between a small elite who make a fortune on Wall Street or through innovative technology and the teeming masses of average Americans. Tensions around how immigration was changing the face and fabric of American society. Political ineffectiveness and outright corruption as politicians were beholden to big-money donors and corporate interests. The advent of new, disruptive technologies that forever changed how Americans, and all the rest of us, lived, worked, and communicated with each other. It's amazing to think how choices, or a lack of choices, made more than 100 years ago echo down to us today. So as you listen this week, keep an ear out for the similarities between our time and the Gilded Age you won't have to try very hard to spot them. And think about how society back then did, or didn't, cope with many of the same challenges. After all, as Mark Twain once pointed out, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. So, to begin with, a definition of terms. There are no hard and fast dates for what years make up what we today call the Gilded Age. Like any historical period, it's not as if one day the government or some official historian announced that a new era in history had begun. Likewise, no formal declaration ever came that the Gilded Age was at an end. But in general, historians use the term the Gilded Age to refer to the period in the United States from roughly the end of the Civil War to about the turn of the 20th century. Some people think of it as the period between the death of Abraham Lincoln and the rise of Teddy Roosevelt. For our purposes, we'll side with those who define the Gilded Age as stretching from about 1870 to about 1900, overlapping with the Reconstruction Era, which ended in 1877, and the start of the Progressive Era, which started sometime in the 1890s, exactly what year depends on who you ask, when some of the excesses of the Gilded Age began to be reined in. And it's worth noting as we talk that, as is usually true with historical periods, no one called it the Gilded Age while it was happening. The name, the Gilded Age, didn't come into widespread use by historians until the 1920s and afterward. But perhaps uniquely in the naming of historical periods, the designation, the Gilded Age, at least comes from someone, some ones, actually, who lived through it. The name comes from the title of the 1873 novel The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today, co-authored by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. The novel is a satire of greed and political corruption in post-Civil War America. Twain and Warner borrowed the term from Shakespeare and a line from his little-known 1595 work King John. To gild refined gold, to paint the lily, is wasteful and ridiculous excess. Gilding gold, in effect putting gold on top of gold, mirrors the excessive and wasteful characteristics of the age that Twain and Warner sought to lampoon. 
It also suggests the contrast between the ideal of a golden age with the reality of a gilded age, which is just a thin layer of gold over base metal. Scratch away at the surface a bit, and you'll find that things are not all they're cracked up to be underneath. All that glitters, etc., etc. And this was how later historians and cultural critics used the term the Gilded Age as a pejorative, disparaging a time of materialistic excess combined with extreme poverty. Perhaps even more damning than this was the description of post-war American society by the future French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, who lived for a time in New York and New England. He felt that during the Gilded Age, the United States went from a stage of barbarism to one of decadence without having achieved civilization between the two. Given Tesla's reaction to America when he first arrived in New York, it is perhaps a sentiment he'd share. It was an era in which corruption was rife among elected officials, beholden as they were to moneyed interests, especially the growing power and influence of the trusts, we'll get to those in a minute, and when the average citizen seemed more self-interested than altruistic. During the second half of the 19th century, accumulating wealth by whatever means possible, and enjoying that wealth ostentatiously, became nearly a virtue. A handful of people made vast fortunes in the railroad industry, in oil, through iron and steel production, and in other corporate endeavors. They would come to be known as the robber barons. On the other end of the spectrum, masses of average Americans, native-born and recent arrivals alike, were just scraping by eking out a living by risking physical and mental harm in menial labor on farms, in mines, or in factories, often working 16 hours a day. Many of these Americans lost all their assets in the series of recessions and economic downturns that plagued the nation between 1865 and 1901. But the Gilded Age was nothing if not an era of contrasts because while this era was marked by the vast gulf between crushing poverty and opulent excess, it was also an era rarely matched for innovation, invention, and imagination. From 1860 to 1890, 500,000 patents were issued for new inventions, over ten times the number issued in the previous 70 years. The list of major inventions made and patented in America during the Gilded Age includes celluloid, leading to a range of new products from men's shirt collars to Kodak film to explosives, the steam boilers of Babcocks and Wilcox, the practical incandescent light bulb of Thomas Edison, George Westinghouse's air brakes for steam trains, which made them both safer and faster, the telephone of Alexander Graham Bell, the telegraph stock ticker of E.A. Callahan, linoleum, the elevator, machine tools of Pratt & Whitney, the newspaper linotype compositor, and the typewriter of Christopher Scholes. Others applied their creativity to inventions as diverse as the safety bicycle, the Pullman railroad car, the internal combustion engine, the automobile, barbed wire, motion pictures, the gramophone, and the x-ray machine. So, the real question this week is, with such a dynamic era to look at, where do we even begin our survey? I've picked out a dozen or so relevant topics that helped shape and define the Gilded Age. And I thought the best place to start would be the economy. Because if there's anything that Star Wars Episode One taught me, it's that starting with a long discussion of trade and economics 
is a surefire way to engage and entertain an audience. Prior to the Civil War, most Americans' idea of economic success depended on how well the family farm was doing. Growth was measured in acres worked, animals raised, bushels of wheat harvested, that sort of thing. After the war, that all changed. By 1900, the American Industrial Revolution had transformed the United States from a country of small, isolated communities scattered across 3 million square miles into a compact economic and industrial unit. During the 1870s and 1880s, the U.S. economy expanded at the fastest rate in history, with real wages, wealth, gross domestic product, and capital formation all increasing rapidly. During the 1870s, the U.S. economy grew at a rate of nearly 7% per year. In the 1880s, the wealth of the nation grew annually at nearly 4%, and the GDP doubled. The United States was fabulously rich in minerals, possessing about two-thirds of the world's coal, immense deposits of high-quality iron ore, great reserves of petroleum, and, in the West, gold, silver, and copper. Between 1860 and 1900, Anthracite coal production increased 525% in millions of tons. During the same time, bituminous coal increased 2,358%. Barrels of crude oil produced increased 9,160%. Tons of pig iron increased 1,713%. And tons of crude steel increased 11,227%. From the mid-19th century through the 1890s, railroads became the basis of this new industrial economy. They allowed settlers and development to reach new areas of the American interior and made possible the development of the steel, iron, and coal industries, amongst others. Vast national networks for transportation and communication were created by the railroad and by the telegraph, which followed along with it, often taking advantage of the cleared rail corridors to set up lines. By 1898, total miles of railroad track laid had increased 567% from pre-war. Travel from New York to San Francisco now took six days instead of six months. Thanks to the railroads, the Union stockyards in Chicago, Illinois, became the principal terminus for beef cattle and other livestock and produce that was shipped from the west and southwest to markets in the east. All major rail lines in the United States connected at this center in Chicago. Just think about that for a second. All major rail lines in the United States converging on this one spot. And after the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads were joined together in 1867, the coast-to-coast railroad system in the United States was the most extensive, well-integrated means of transportation of goods and people in the world. Before the Civil War, the United States was a second-rate industrial power, but by 1898 it led Britain, France, and Germany. The value of U.S. manufactured goods almost equaled the total of the three other nations combined. In 1870, agricultural production outpaced industrial production by about $500 million. By 1900, manufacturing had increased more than fourfold, outstripping agricultural production by nearly $8 billion a year, and that's in the money from 1900. The corporation, not individual homesteads or small businesses, became the dominant form of business organization, 
the scientific management revolution transformed business operations. By 1900, economic concentration extended into most branches of industry. A few large corporations, called trusts, dominated in steel, oil, sugar, meat, and farm machinery. Through vertical integration, these trusts controlled each aspect of the production of a specific good, ensuring that the profits made on the finished product were maximized and expenses minimized, and by controlling access to the raw materials, they prevented other companies from being able to compete in the marketplace. Several monopolies, most famously Standard Oil, came to dominate their markets by keeping prices low when competitors appeared. These monopolies grew at a rate of four times faster than that of competitive sectors. So you have some sense of how effective these trusts could be. It is estimated that at the time of his death in 1937, John D. Rockefeller's net worth was equivalent to four times the current net worth of Bill Gates, generally considered to be the number one or number two wealthiest person on the planet since, oh, about the mid-1990s. Four times. As wealthy industrialists and financiers like Rockefeller, as well as Andrew Mellon, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Leland Stanford, Meyer Guggenheim, and Cornelius Vanderbilt rose to prominence, fortune, and power, they were labeled robber barons by their critics, who argued that their vast fortunes were made at the expense of the working class, by deceitful business practices, and a betrayal of democratic principles. Their admirers, on the other hand, called them captains of industry, who built the American economy. Much like today's ultra-wealthy tech billionaires, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, or investors like Warren Buffett, many of the robber barons of the Gilded Age engaged in massive acts of philanthropy. Andrew Carnegie donated over 90% of his wealth, claiming philanthropy was the duty of the ultra-rich. John D. Rockefeller donated over $500 million to various charities, slightly over half his entire net worth. Private money endowed thousands of colleges, hospitals, museums, academies, schools, opera houses, public libraries, and various charities. Just think back to that list of robber barons I read a minute ago. Many of those names should sound familiar to you from places like Rockefeller Center, Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Mellon University, Stanford University, Vanderbilt University, the Guggenheim Museum of Modern Art. But for every philanthrope, there were business leaders more influenced by Herbert Spencer's theory of social Darwinism, which married the evolutionary biology of Charles Darwin, particularly the whole survival of the fittest thing, with free enterprise capitalism, to argue that those who feel an obligation to provide assistance to people ill-equipped to compete for resources will lead to a country in which the weak and inferior breed to excess, eventually dragging the country down to ruin. Ayn Rand, eat your heart out. Social Darwinists believed that the best equipped to win the struggle for existence was the American businessman, and concluded that taxes and regulations were a danger to his survival. Stop me when this sounds familiar. These theorists believed in laissez-faire capitalism, ruthless competition, and social stratification. Essentially, they were all Ebenezer Scrooge before the ghosts came to visit. The rapid expansion of industrialization meant wage growth. The Census Bureau reported in 1892 that the average annual wage per industrial worker, including men, women, and children, 
rose 48% between 1880 and 1890. For the 30-year period between 1870 and 1900, the average annual incomes of all American non-farm employee wages grew by roughly 53%. Consider that in our own time, wages have been essentially stagnant for 30-plus years, and you can get a sense of just how explosive this growth was during the Gilded Age. I, for one, could use an extra 53% salary. Maybe you could too. But these numbers are an average, and gains were far from evenly distributed. From 1860 to 1900, the wealthiest 2% of American households owned more than a third of the nation's wealth, while the top 10% owned roughly three-fourths of it. The bottom 40% had no wealth at all. The wealthiest 1% owned 51% of all property, while the bottom 44% claimed a mere 1.1%. Workers generally earned less than $800 a year, which kept them mired in poverty, and they had to work roughly 60 hours a week to earn this much. Wage labor was widely condemned as wage slavery in the working class press, and labor leaders almost always used the phrase in their speeches. And there was significant human cost attached to such explosive economic growth. American industry had the highest rates of accidents in the world during much of the Gilded Age. In 1889, railroads employed 704,000 men, of whom 20,000 were injured, and just under 2,000 were killed on the job. The U.S. was also the only industrial power to have no workmen's compensation program in place to support injured workers. These disparities in wealth, along with precarious working and living conditions for the working classes, prompted the rise of populist, anarchist, and socialist movements. Economists during this time were concerned that the United States was becoming increasingly inegalitarian to the point of becoming like old Europe, and further and further away from its original pioneering ideal. As the shift toward wage labor gained momentum, working class organizations became more militant in their efforts to strike down the whole system of wages for labor. While union organizing and union membership grew steadily in the industrial centers after 1870, most unions refused membership to women, African Americans, and Chinese, but were generally welcoming of most European immigrants. Union-led strikes became routine events in the 1880s as the gap between the rich and the poor widened. There were 37,000 strikes between 1881 and 1905, most of short duration. By far the largest number were in the building trades, followed far behind by coal miners. The main goal was control of working conditions and settling which rival union was in control. Violence was often a common feature, incited at various times and places by the unions, the police, and or Pinkertons, or agitators and provocateurs hired by companies to try and break up a strike by violence. One notable exception to the short strike rule of the era was the Great Railroad Strike of 1877, thought to be the largest strike anywhere in the world in the 19th century. Involving 80,000 railroad workers and several hundred thousand other Americans, both employed and unemployed, it broke out during the economic depression of the 1870s. Not a true union strike, but rather a series of uncoordinated outbursts in numerous cities, the strike and associated riots lasted 45 days and resulted in the deaths of several hundred participants, several hundred more injuries, 
and millions in damages to railroad property. Eventually, President Rutherford B. Hayes intervened with federal troops. Perhaps the most enduring labor organization to come out of this era was the American Federation of Labor, headed by Samuel Gompers. The AFL was a coalition of unions, each based on strong local chapters. The AFL coordinated their work in cities and prevented the kind of jurisdictional battles that were common at the time and which held back progress toward labor's goals. Gompers repudiated socialism and abandoned the violent nature of earlier unions. The AFL worked to control the local labor market, thereby empowering its locals to obtain higher wages and more control over hiring. As a result, the AFL unions spread to most cities, reaching a peak membership in 1919. Economics and politics usually go hand in hand, so let's turn to the politics of the day. The Gilded Age was marked by three presidential assassinations, though two have been all but forgotten. The era can be said to have begun with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln on April 14, 1865. It is bisected by the assassination of President James Garfield just four months into his term in July 1881. His assassin, Charles Guiteau, we met briefly in the historical recap in episode 5. Guiteau suffered from mental illness. His family believed him insane as early as 1875 and tried to have him committed, but Guiteau escaped. Despite all this, however, his insanity plea was rejected at trial, and he was hanged. The Gilded Age came to a close with the murder of President William McKinley by an anarchist in 1901. McKinley's assassination has some resonance with the topic of our podcast, actually. He was shot after touring the hydroelectric station at Niagara Falls that Tesla and Westinghouse made possible. He was taken to hospital in an electrically powered ambulance, and his assassin was eventually executed in the electric chair. With McKinley's death, Vice President Theodore Roosevelt became president, and his rise is where most accounts of the Gilded Age stop, and the history of the Progressive Era begins, with its emphasis on political reform and social activism, especially around eliminating problems caused by industrialization, urbanization, immigration, and corruption in government during the Gilded Age. Politics in Gilded Age America was tainted with the bitterness of post-war reconstruction, the apathy of dozens of millionaire congressmen, and the outright corruption of political party bosses. Despite this, however, Turnout for elections was staggeringly high, on the order of 80 or even 90% in some states. Gilded Age politics is today called the third party system, as it featured intense competition between two major parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, with smaller parties coming and going as they were organized around specific issues of concern, such as prohibition, monetary policy, or support for labor unions and farmers. The era was dominated by the still relatively new Republican Party, the Party of Lincoln, which claimed success in saving the Union, abolishing slavery, and franchising the freedmen, all while adopting modernizations like national banks, railroads, high tariffs, homesteads, and social spending. While most elections from 1876 through 1892 were extremely close, Democrats won the presidency only twice in the elections of 1884 and 1892. Fun side note of relevance to recent American history, 
The Democrats won the popular vote in the 1876 and 1888 presidential election, but lost in the Electoral College. Despite mostly losing the presidency, from 1876 to 1892, Democrats usually controlled the House of Representatives, and from 1879 to 1887, frequently also controlled the Senate, as they did for essentially all of the 1890s. Northern and western states were largely Republican, except for what we would today call swing states, which at the time were New York, Indiana, New Jersey, and Connecticut. After 1876, most of what had been the Confederate states became known as the Solid South, that is, reliably blue states, resentful as they were of Lincoln's Republican Party in the aftermath of Southern defeat. They would remain pretty solidly Democrat for nearly a century, until the upheaval of the 1960s and Richard Nixon's Southern strategy of 1968. The dominant issues were cultural, especially regarding prohibition, education, and ethnic and racial groups, as well as economic, around tariffs and money supply. With the rapid growth of cities, political machines increasingly took control of urban politics. The trusts also began throwing money around to influence politicians. Overall, Republican and Democratic political platforms remained remarkably constant during the years before 1900. Republicans generally favored inflationary, protectionist policies, while Democrats favored hard money, free trade, and other laissez-faire policies. Republicans found their support among union veterans, businessmen, professionals, craftsmen, and larger farmers. The Democrats, often led by Irish Catholics, had a base among Catholics, poor farmers, and traditional party members. Arguments about monetary policy, the gold standard, and what should form the true basis of the U.S. dollar became an enduring political controversy during the Gilded Age. The gold standard, the silver ratio, bimetallism, and credit as the basis for the currency all had their supporters. The controversy had its origins in the Civil War. The Union government had resorted to printing extra money to pay for the war, For the first time, paper money included both national banknotes and new government-issued greenbacks. After the war, the government tried to revert strictly to the gold standard, by which the value of currency was determined by the amount of gold bullion held in the treasury as security. After the war, Congress authorized the Secretary of the Treasury to recall and retire millions of dollars in greenbacks each month. This led to deflation, which was to the advantage of businessmen and those who had bought government bonds during the war. They had done so with a depreciated currency and now stood to make a tidy profit when the bonds were redeemed in gold, but hurt small debtors such as farmers who had borrowed depreciated money during the war and now faced the prospect of having to repay their loans with a currency that was now revised upward. During the two financial panics of the Gilded Age in 1873 and 1893, The government went back and forth, issuing greenbacks to try and stimulate the economy, and then recalling them when it seemed the recession had ended, much to the confusion of everyone. During this time, and especially in the West, where rich veins of silver were being mined, there was a growing movement to force the government to buy silver at the official pre-Civil War value, a ratio of 16 ounces of silver to 1 ounce of gold even though the market was flooded with silver and its actual value was far less. At one point, it was worth only 26.5 ounces of silver to one ounce of gold on the open market. 
After legislative efforts by Congress failed to maintain the price of silver, gold bugs argued for a return to a pure gold standard, which silverites could not accept. While this argument may seem arcane to us, accustomed as we are to not being on the gold standard, the gold bug versus silverite argument became a major point of contention in both the Republican and Democratic parties, splitting each caucus, and it became a major issue in the election of 1896. Indeed, it led to the formation of a whole new political party, the Populists, who represented farmers and silverites in the South and West, and whose platform focused on a reform of the currency by use of silver as well as gold, called bimetallism, on the ratio of 16 to 1. Okay, great, you might be saying to yourself. Monetary policy. (sighs) Did anybody outside Washington or Wall Street really care even back then? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. And you've almost certainly heard of one. Lyman F. Baum, better known by his pen name as L. Frank Baum, the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Did you know that since the 1960s, there has been a raging scholarly debate about The Wonderful Wizard of Oz as a political allegory for the late 19th century debate about U.S. monetary policy? What's that? You didn't? Shame on you. Well, then sit back and check out this extended fun fact for today. In 1964, educator and historian Henry Littlefield published an article in the journal American Quarterly entitled The Wizard of Oz, Parable on Populism. He argues that The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is an allegory about the monetary policy debates raging just prior to the book's first publication in 1900. According to this view, for instance, the yellow brick road represents the gold standard, and Dorothy's magic silver slippers, which were changed to ruby slippers in the 1939 film version to better show off the wonders of color film, represent the Silverite political movement literally walking or dancing all over the gold standard. Silveritism was popular especially in the western United States, where a great deal of silver was mined. It's worth noting that on a map of Oz, Munchkinland is to the west of Emerald City. And there are those who argue that the name Oz is itself a play on the abbreviation OZ for ounce, as in the troy ounce in which silver is measured so that the book's title could be read as The Wonderful Wizard of Ounce. Now, this thesis is far from universally accepted. There are plenty of scholars who disagree, claiming that Baum never intended the book as an allegory of anything, or that Littlefield's own knowledge of the 1890s was thin and riddled with errors. However, since the article's publication, scholars in history, economics, and other fields have elaborated on Littlefield's theory. Historian Quentin Taylor has argued that events and characters in the book represent actual political personalities, events, and ideas of the 1890s. Dorothy, naive, young, and simple, represents the American people. She is the everyman, led astray, and looking for the way back home. The Scarecrow represents American farmers and their troubles in the late 19th century. The Tin Man represents industrial workers, especially those of the American steel industry. The Cowardly Lion is said to be a metaphor for William Jennings Bryan, an orator and member of the United States House of Representatives, who stood three times, unsuccessfully, as the Democratic Party nominee for president 
in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. A prominent supporter of bimetallism, he is famous for his Cross of Gold speech at the 1896 Democratic National Convention, in which he attacked the gold standard and Eastern moneyed interests. He is perhaps best remembered today as the prosecutor in the famed Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, arguing for creationism over Darwinian evolution. In the book, following the road of gold eventually leads to the Emerald City, which may symbolize the fraudulent world of greenback paper money that only pretends to have value. After all, the land is ruled by a scheming politician, the wizard, who uses publicity devices and tricks to fool the people, and even the good witches, into believing he is benevolent, wise, and powerful, when really he is a selfish, evil humbug. He is ultimately powerless, and admits to Dorothy, I'm a very bad wizard. Other writers have suggested that the wizard symbolizes bankers who support the gold standard over silver. And since it was only Dorothy's silver slippers that could take her home to Kansas, it represents the Westerners who never realized they already had a viable currency of the people. Even the tornado that picks up Dorothy and deposits her in the land of Oz can be read as symbolic. Cyclones were often used in political cartoons in the Gilded Age as metaphors for political upheaval, in this case, transforming a drab country into a land of color and unlimited prosperity. See? Suddenly, obscure monetary debates from the late 19th century are a bit more interesting, aren't they? As mentioned, political corruption was common in this period. Perhaps the most notorious example was the Credit Mobilier scandal of 1872, in which cash and $9 million in discounted stock were given as bribes to 15 powerful Washington politicians, including the Vice President, the Secretary of the Treasury, four Senators, and the Speaker and other members of the House. The politics of major metropolitan centers was no better. Irish Catholics, who had arrived in large numbers in the 1840s and 1850s in the wake of the Great Potato Famine in Ireland, comprised a major element in the leadership of the urban Democratic Party machines across the country. With rapid population growth in cities came many lucrative contracts and jobs to award. To take advantage, both parties built so-called political machines to manage elections, reward supporters, and pay off potential opponents. The winning party distributed most local, state, and national government jobs and many government contracts to its loyal supporters. Constituents began supporting candidates in exchange for anticipated patronage, and often candidates were selected based on their willingness to play along with the spoils system. Perhaps the largest example of a political machine from this time period is Tammany Hall in New York City, led by the famed Boss Tweed. Political corruption was rampant as business leaders spent significant amounts of money ensuring that government did not regulate the activities of big business, and they more often than not got what they wanted. Such corruption was so commonplace that in 1868 the New York State Legislature literally legalized such bribery. There came to be a growing sense among the public that such government-enabled political machines resulted in favoritism, bribery, inefficiency, waste, and corruption. Accordingly, there were widespread calls for reform, which resulted in legislation like the 1883 Pendleton Civil Service Act. Enacted during the administration of President Chester A. Arthur, 
and given more power under Grover Cleveland, the Pendleton Act established federal civil service examinations and attempted to eliminate patronage in filling of government jobs. There was also a great deal of political activism and agitation by interest groups outside of government dedicated to specific causes, like the eight-hour workday, the abolition of child labor, prohibition, and women's suffrage. Richard T. Eli, founder of the American Economic Association, educator John Dewey, and other reformers began measuring the relationship between prosperity and poverty, developing strategies to reduce the disparity between rich and poor, and to encourage all U.S. citizens to improve the quality of life in both rural and urban America. Local governments across the North and West built public elementary schools, and public high schools also started to emerge. Education reform and the expansion of the public school system meant more educational opportunities for immigrants, women, and former slaves. The growth of colleges and universities, many of them founded for women, resulted in the entry of more women into the paid workforce. These colleges and universities, some private, some public, offered agricultural and technological training and promoted the development of such fields of study as psychology, agronomy, and newer professions like social work. And speaking of immigrants, Gilded Age immigration trends radically altered the national culture, perhaps more so even than the industrial development or territorial expansion. The United States experienced a spectacular population boom during the Gilded Age, growing from a nation of 35,701,000 people in 1865 to 77,584,000 people by 1901, including as many as 20 million immigrants. They arrived mainly from Europe. Prior to about 1880, they came from Germany, Britain, Ireland, and Scandinavia. After 1880 came what was called the New Immigration, which peaked about 1910 and saw massive waves of immigrants from Italy, Poland, Austria, Hungary, Russia, Greece, and other points in southern and central Europe. Smaller populations of immigrants came from South America, Africa, and Asia, particularly China. They sought what all immigrants seek, better economic opportunity, especially the opportunity to own their own land, which was often impossible in the old world, freedom to practice their religion without persecution. Many European Jews, for example, immigrated during this era hoping to escape often violent anti-Semitism in the old world, and the benefits of democracy. Many immigrants arrived from nations still ruled by hereditary monarchs of one strain or another, and their attendant aristocracy. Some immigrants were prosperous in the old world, arriving with cash in hand to buy a farm or a business. Most, however, were poor peasants looking for work in unskilled manual labor, be it in a mill, mine, or factory. Most immigration was to the north, the south was still largely poverty-stricken after the Civil War, we'll get there in a minute, and many would head west. So great were the numbers entering via the Port of New York, Tesla included, that to accommodate the heavy influx, the federal government opened a reception center at Ellis Island near the Statue of Liberty in 1892. First-generation immigrants typically lived in ethnic enclaves with a common language, food, religion, and connections through the old village. The sheer number of arrivals strained municipal infrastructure and caused overcrowding in tenements in the larger cities. In the small mills or mining towns, however, management usually built company housing with cheap rents. On the West Coast, 
Immigration included a large Chinese element who were often hired for temporary railroad work. In the 1870 census, there were 63,000 Chinese men, with a few women, in the entire United States. By 1880, this number had nearly doubled to 106,000. Americans of European descent disliked the Chinese for what they saw as an alien lifestyle. Labor unions opposed the presence of Chinese workers, blaming them for dragging down wages. So fierce was this opposition that in 1882 Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned further Chinese immigration. It was only repealed in the 1940s, but immigrants from China were still not allowed to become U.S. citizens until 1950. Unwelcome in most urban neighborhoods, Chinese immigrants developed their own ethnic enclaves, which became the often bustling Chinatown districts of large cities. The arrival of so many immigrants over the course of three decades provided a seemingly inexhaustible supply of cheap labor and created instant markets for food, housing, and clothing. Many saw contributions from immigrants as an untapped reservoir of creativity and skill to grow and to develop American commerce and industry, making it stronger and more resilient through farming, manufacturing, mining, science, the arts, architecture, medicine, and a myriad of other endeavors. Others, however, not so much. A significant number of native-born Americans began to question the wisdom of encouraging, or even permitting, foreign-born immigrants' entry into the United States. These nativists feared American social norms and cultural traditions would be eroded by foreigners. And because many of the foreign-born flocked to cities where factory work was readily available, the native-born feared for their job security. As a result of this growing nativism, native-born citizens established fraternal and labor organizations, as well as secret societies, designed to exclude undesirable foreign elements, halt the influence of immigrants on American culture, and protect jobs. Others, notably the Ku Klux Klan, founded in 1865 by ex-Confederate army officers, were concerned with harassing, persecuting, and murdering people on the basis of race, religion, or ethnicity. The Klan hated blacks, Jews, Catholics, and immigrants of all kinds. Fears on the part of native-born Americans about regional and national economic instability, cultural norms, and employment conditions led ultimately to protective legislation, like the Chinese Exclusion Act mentioned a minute ago, development of annual quotas, and limiting certain racial, ethnic, and national groups from making the United States their permanent home. As I mentioned, a great multitude of the recent arrivals to the United States headed west to the frontier, lured there by the promise of cheap land. At 3.05 p.m. on May 10, 1869, a telegram arrived in New York City from Promontory Summit, Utah, announcing one of the great engineering accomplishments of the century. The telegram read, The last rail is laid. The last spike driven. The Pacific Railroad is completed. The point of junction is 1,086 miles west of the Missouri River and 690 miles east of Sacramento City. In City Hall Park in Manhattan, the announcement was greeted with the firing of 100 guns. Church bells rang across the country from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. Business was suspended in Chicago as people rushed to the streets, celebrating to the sounding of steam whistles and the boom of cannon. 
the first transcontinental railroad, a combination of the Union Pacific from Omaha to Utah and the Central Pacific from Utah to California, opened up the far west. As I mentioned earlier, travel from New York to San Francisco now took six days instead of six months. Lewis and Clark, eat your heart out. Easy travel by rail meant migrants could go take a look at the planes for themselves and decide what they thought of their prospects. They could use special family tickets, the cost of which could later be applied to land purchases offered by the railroads. They would find that farming the plains was indeed more difficult than farming back east or back in the old world. The soil had to be broken up and tilled for the first time. Water management was more critical, lightning fires more frequent, the weather more extreme, and rainfall less predictable. But with the Homestead Act providing free land to citizens, and the railroads selling cheap land to European farmers, the settlement of the Great Plains happened in the blink of an eye, and the frontier, the wild, wild west, was essentially closed by 1890. Getting the short end of this deal, of course, were Native Americans, who were already living on the land and, as you can imagine, weren't all that thrilled to have all these settlers showing up and start building towns and tilling their ancestral land. European encroachment on native territories had been happening to one degree or another since, well, since Europeans started arriving in the New World in earnest after 1492. The Spanish, the French, the English, and eventually the mishmash known as Americans. Relations between European immigrants and Native Americans west of the Mississippi were, for many decades and even many centuries, mostly sporadic. Now, this isn't to suggest that the arrival of Europeans hadn't had devastating effects on Native peoples. European diseases alone claimed millions of indigenous lives over the first few centuries of contact. And there were certainly violent encounters between individual tribes and groups of Europeans throughout the centuries, often small-scale and regional, particularly after 1776, as well as later more organized warfare as Native people allied themselves with various feuding European powers, as in the Seven Years' War, known in the United States as the French and Indian War. And there were harsh government policies in place too. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 authorized the U.S. government to enforce the large-scale removal of indigenous peoples who lived east of the Mississippi River and move them to the sparsely populated western frontier. But over the centuries, settler governments, first the French and British, and later the U.S. government, signed and ratified more than 400 treaties with the Plains Indians, those indigenous peoples living west of the Mississippi, that resolved violent conflicts, recognized land claims, exchanged territory, and agreed, at least on paper, to peaceful coexistence. That changed, however, in the 19th century. First, with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, the various gold rushes mid-century, with land grants for railroad construction, and finally, with the influx of vast numbers of Europeans in the latter half of the century, many of whom were determined to push west. It was manifest destiny in action, the widely held belief in the United States that its settlers were destined to expand across North America and build an agrarian paradise. Miners, ranchers, and settlers began ignoring the various treaties signed with Native American tribes, and soon this became official government policy too. After 1865, the federal government ordered official assimilation. 
Native Americans either had to assimilate into larger American community or live on reservations. Natives were no longer allowed to roam traditional lands, hunt as they traditionally had, or fight their traditional enemies. The U.S. Army was tasked with enforcing these policies. Indians who would not submit to either assimilation or the reservation system were effectively declared enemies of the United States. It was the era of the Indian Wars. When Ulysses S. Grant assumed the presidency in 1869, he appointed William Tecumseh Sherman as commanding general of the army, and Sherman was responsible for U.S. engagement in the Indian Wars. On the ground in the West, General Philip Henry Sheridan, on Sherman's orders, took to persecuting rebellious Native Americans with the same zeal he had in the Shenandoah Valley during the Civil War, when he ordered scorched-earth tactics against Confederates that presaged Sherman's own march to the sea. The Transcontinental Railroad made Sheridan's strategy of total war against indigenous peoples devastatingly effective, particularly when it came to undermining the foundation of many tribes' traditional ways of life, a life centered around the buffalo. In the mid-19th century, it was estimated that 30 to 60 million buffalo roamed the plains. Herds numbered in the hundreds of thousands, creating a sound as they passed that earned them the nickname Thunder of the Plains. Within a mere 50 years, however, there would be only 300 buffalo left in the wild. No, you heard that right. Only 300 left. That's 0.00001% of their population only 50 years earlier. The buffalo's lifespan of 25 years, rapid reproduction, and suitability to their environment enabled the species to flourish for eons before humans arrived in North America and for tens of thousands of years once the ancestors of Native Americans arrived. Native Americans were careful not to overhunt, and even men like Buffalo Bill Cody, who was hired by the Kansas Pacific Railroad to hunt bison to feed thousands of rail laborers over the course of several years, couldn't make much of a dent in the vast buffalo population. In mid-century, Trappers, who had already depleted the beaver population of the Midwest, began trading in buffalo robes and tongues. An estimated 200,000 buffalo were killed annually. But it was the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad that accelerated the decimation of the species. Massive hunting parties began to arrive in the West via train, with thousands of men packing 50 caliber rifles, all leaving a trail of buffalo carnage in their wake. Unlike the Native Americans or Buffalo Bill, who killed for food or clothing and shelter, Eastern hunters killed for sport. Harper's Weekly described these hunting excursions. Nearly every railroad train which leaves or arrives at Fort Hayes on the Kansas Pacific Railroad has its race with these herds of buffalo, and a most interesting and exciting scene is the result. The train is slowed to a rate of speed about equal to that of the herd, Passengers get out firearms, which are provided for the defense of the train against the Indians, and open from the windows and platforms of the cars a fire that resembles a brisk skirmish. Frequently, a young bull will turn at bay for a moment. His exhibition of courage is generally his death warrant, for the whole fire of the train is turned upon him, either killing him or some member of the herd in his immediate vicinity. Killing buffalo without the inconvenience of having to leave your train car meant that hundreds of thousands of carcasses of the 1,500-pound animals were left to rot where they died on the grassy plain. One hunter, Orlando Brown, 
is credited with killing nearly 6,000 buffalo just by himself. In fact, he permanently lost hearing in one ear from the constant firing of his 50 caliber rifle. The Texas legislature, sensing the buffalo were in danger of being wiped out, proposed a bill to protect the species. General Sheridan opposed it, stating, These men have done more in the last two years, and will do more in the next year, to settle the vexed Indian question than the entire regular army has done in the last forty years. They are destroying the Indians' commissary, and it is a well-known fact that an army losing its base of supplies is placed at a great disadvantage. For lasting peace, let them kill, skin, and sell until the buffaloes are exterminated. Then your prairies can be covered with speckled cattle. By the end of the 19th century, and with only a handful of buffalo left alive, Congress finally took action, outlawing the killing of any bird or animal in Yellowstone National Park, where the only surviving buffalo herd could be protected. Conservationists established more wildlife preserves over the years, and the species slowly edged away from annihilation. Today, there are more than 200,000 buffalo in North America. In the face of systemic and overwhelming opposition from settlers and the U.S. government, and the near extinction of the buffalo, violent resistance by native peoples petered out in the 1880s and practically ceased after 1890, as Native Americans were pushed onto reservations. Sheridan, curiously self-aware of the devastation his actions and the policies of the U.S. government were causing for Native peoples, acknowledged the role of the railroad in changing the face of the American West, and in his annual report of the General of the U.S. Army in 1878, he acknowledged that the Native Americans were forced onto reservations with no compensation beyond the promise of religious instruction and basic supplies of food and clothing, promises, he wrote, which were never fulfilled. We took away their country and their means of support, broke up their mode of living, their habits of life, introduced disease and decay among them, and it was for this and against this that they made war. Could anyone expect less? Then why wonder at Indian difficulties? To assimilate the natives into American society, reformers set up training programs and schools. Living on their own in larger society and earning wages, native men would typically find work as a cowboy on a ranch or a manual worker in a town. Reformers wanted to give Native Americans their own farms and ranches, but ran into issues about how to give individuals land owned by the tribe. In 1887, the Dawes Act proposed dividing tribal lands into parcels of 160 acres, that's 0.65 square kilometers, for each head of family. These allotments were to be held in trust by the government for 25 years, then given to owners with full title, so that they could sell it or mortgage it. As individual native owners then sold their land, the total held by the native community shrank by almost half, further undermining traditional communal tribal organization. With the influx of immigrants and their westward expansion, it's no surprise that there was a dramatic expansion in farming during the Gilded Age. The number of farms tripled from 2 million in 1860 to 6 million in 1905, with the number of people living on farms growing from 10 million in 1860 to 22 million in 1880 to 31 million by 1905. As I mentioned, the federal government issued 160-acre tracts virtually free to settlers under the Homestead Act of 1862, even larger numbers purchased lands at very low interest rates from the new railroads, 
who advertised heavily in Europe and brought over, at low fares, hundreds of thousands of farmers from Germany, Scandinavia, and Britain in the hopes of developing new markets in the American West. Despite the challenges of farming in the American plains, a number of steam-powered mechanical improvements, including steam-powered plows, threshers, mills, and pumps, as well as steam tractors, greatly increased yield per unit areas, and the amount of land under cultivation grew rapidly throughout the second half of the century. Wheat farmers enjoyed abundant output and good years from 1876 to 1881, when bad European harvests kept the world prices high. But they then suffered from a slump in the 1880s when conditions in Europe improved. Wheat farmers, resentful of the monopolistic railroads that moved their goods to market, instead blamed local grain elevator owners who purchased their crop, railroads, and eastern bankers for the low prices. Few single men attempted to operate a farm, instead realizing the need for a hard-working wife and numerous children to handle the many chores on a farm. During the early years of settlement, farm women played an integral role in assuring family survival by working outdoors. After a generation or so, women increasingly left the fields, redefining their roles within the family. New conveniences, such as sewing and washing machines, encouraged women to turn to domestic roles. The scientific housekeeping movement was promoted by the media and government extension agents, as well as county fairs, which featured achievements in home cookery and canning, advice columns for women in the farm papers, and home economics courses in schools. Rural folk created a rich social life for themselves. Most families had ties to local churches, and many joined a local branch of the Grange. Launched in 1867 by employees of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Granges focused initially on social activities to counter the isolation farm families experienced. Women's participation was actively encouraged. Spurred by the Panic of 1873, the Grange soon grew to 20,000 chapters and 1.5 million members. The Granges set up their own marketing systems, stores, processing plants, factories, and co-ops. The movement also enjoyed some political success during the 1870s. A few Midwestern states passed Granger laws, limiting railroad and warehouse fees. Popular organized activities were part of rural life and often combined practical work, abundant food, and simple entertainment, such as barn raising, corn husking, and quilting bees. Women organized shared meals and potluck events, as well as extended visits between families. Scholars debate the nature of childhood on these western farms, however. One group argues that it represented a kind of rural ideal, allowing children to break free of urban hierarchies, promoted family interdependence, and produced children who were more self-reliant, adaptable, responsible, independent, and more in touch with nature than their urban or eastern counterparts. However, other historians offer a grim portrait of loneliness, privation, abuse, and demanding physical labor from an early age. Urban life in Gilded Age America was having its own boom at the same moment. As mentioned earlier, demands for unskilled labor meant that large numbers of immigrants went to mill towns, mining camps, and industrial cities. New York, Philadelphia, and especially Chicago, saw rapid growth. This dramatic population boom stretched infrastructure to its breaking point, and population densities approached dangerous levels. As immigration increased in cities, poverty rose as well. The poorest crowded into low-cost housing, 
such as the Five Points and Hell's Kitchen neighborhoods in Manhattan. These areas were quickly overridden with notorious criminal gangs such as the Five Points Gang and the Bowery Boys. The living conditions were such that the death rates in these crowded urban tenements vastly exceeded those in the countryside. Real concerns developed about how to accommodate continuing expansion. As it turns out, steel was the solution. Steel became an essential medium for building bridges, piping water and sewage, transmitting gas and electricity, and constructing ever taller buildings. Iron replaced wood, steel replaced iron, and electricity and steam replaced horsepower. (coughs) Expansion required a better transportation system than horse-drawn streetcars. Electric trolleys and street railways were the rage in the 1880s, followed by elevated railways and subways in the largest cities. Architects of the day found their solution in steel and concrete construction, and by 1870, buildings were growing ever taller. Lewis Sullivan became a noted architect using steel frames to construct skyscrapers for the first time, while pioneering the ideal of form follows function. Chicago became the center of the skyscraper craze, starting with the 10-story Home Insurance Building by William LeBaron Jenny. Not to be outdone, New York City featured the first full elevator-equipped building, the Equitable Life Assurance Building, completed on May 1, 1870, a seven-story marble-covered building on Lower Broadway in Manhattan. New York in the Gilded Age is probably a topic for an episode all on its own, so we'll leave the discussion of cities there for now, and probably come back to it later on in the podcast. While the United States was busy expanding westward, it was also actively acquiring more territory beyond the natural border of the Pacific. By 1867, plans were underway for a survey of Panama so that a canal could be built to connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, to facilitate trade, as well as the U.S. Navy's access to coal and to specific ports. Other acquisitions included a number of Pacific islands, as well as the purchase of Alaska, bought from Russia at the urging of Secretary of State William Seward for a price of two cents per acre. The Alaska Territory became part of the United States on October 18, 1867. It was popularly known as Seward's Folly, or Seward's Icebox. The United States annexed Midway Island in August 1867, a move applauded by expansionists who saw this possession as key to preserving U.S. naval superiority. Shortly before the turn of the 20th century, these same expansionist impulses resulted in the annexation of the Hawaiian Islands. However, each of these acquisitions or annexations were met with growing controversy. Beginning in the 1880s, imperialists and anti-imperialists in Congress clashed over what role the United States was to play on the world stage. The thought of expanding trade opportunities for domestic products fueled the desire for a strengthened U.S. presence worldwide, but the appeal of increasing the territorial advantage of the United States was equally important to imperialists. Eventually, the imperialists would win the argument, but only after leading the nation into war with Spain in 1898 over the issue of, of all things, Cuban independence. Revolts had been occurring in Cuba for years against Spanish rule, but in the late 1890s, U.S. public opinion was agitated by anti-Spanish propaganda and calls for war led by newspaper publishers Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. Both Pulitzer and Hearst were pioneers of yellow journalism, 
a type of journalism that presented little or no legitimate, well-researched news, and instead used eye-catching headlines, including some printed in garish yellow ink, hence the name Yellow Journalism, to sell more newspapers. They would engage in exaggerations of news events, scandal-mongering, and sensationalism. Basically, it was Fox News and MSNBC and clickbait headlines before there was Fox News and MSNBC and clickbait headlines. I told you this era would remind you a lot of our own. In this case, they wanted a war and were determined to get one. You never say anything about killing anyone. I've hired you to help me start a war. It's a prestigious line of work with a long and glorious tradition. While Pulitzer and Hearst were banging the drums for war, the business community across the United States, which had just recovered from a deep depression and feared that a war would reverse those gains, lobbied hard against the conflict. But, and you knew there had to be a but, on February 15, 1898, at 9.40 p.m., the U.S. Navy armored cruiser, the USS Maine, exploded and sank while at anchor in Havana Harbor. U.S. President McKinley had sent the USS Maine to Havana to ensure the safety of American citizens and interests, and to underscore the urgent need for reform. But with the ship's destruction under mysterious circumstances, well, you know this isn't going to end well, right? Most American leaders took the position that the cause of the explosion was unknown, but public attention was riveted by the deaths of 250 of 355 sailors aboard the Maine, and speculation ran wild. McKinley asked Congress to appropriate $50 million for defense, and Congress unanimously obliged. The U.S. Navy's investigation, made public six weeks after the explosion, concluded that the ship's powder magazines were ignited when an external explosion was set off under the ship's hull. Spanish investigation, not surprisingly, came to the opposite conclusion. The explosion originated within the ship, To this day, the cause of the explosion isn't definitively known, and other investigations over the last hundred years have come to similarly contradictory conclusions. One in 1974, run by a U.S. Navy admiral, concluded that there was an internal explosion. Another, commissioned in 1999 by National Geographic, found that the explosion could have been caused by a mine, but wasn't definitive. Whatever the cause, it didn't matter. Popular opinion in the U.S., fanned by the yellow press, blamed Spain. The phrase, remember the Maine, to hell with Spain, became a rallying cry for action. And, as is so often the case with a catchy, often rhyming slogan in American history, think, give me liberty or give me death, 5440 or fight, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, I like Ike, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, etc., etc., its power became irresistible. War started in April, was fought in both the Caribbean and the Pacific, and lasted ten weeks. As the American agitators for war expected, U.S. naval power proved decisive. The war ended later that year with the Treaty of Paris, negotiated on terms favorable to the U.S., giving it temporary control of Cuba, though the U.S. would essentially have its hand in the Cuban pie until Castro's revolution in the 1950s and ceded ownership of Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippine Islands to the United States. With the loss of these possessions, the Spanish Empire, the very empire that had discovered the New World, came to an end.
Fun fact, of all the wars the United States has fought, and by Wikipedia's count, that's 116 wars in 242 years, the Spanish-American War is one of only five U.S. wars to have been formally declared by the Congress of the United States. Having looked westward, let's turn now to the South, which, in the aftermath of the Civil War, remained economically devastated. As I mentioned earlier, the Gilded Age overlaps with what is known as the Reconstruction Era, the attempted transformation of the southern United States from 1863 to 1877, as directed by Congress, from states with slave economies to states in which former slaves were citizens with full civil rights. With the three Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th abolishing slavery, the 14th granting full citizenship to male former slaves and guaranteeing them the right to vote in federal elections, and the 15th Amendment protecting individual voting rights against any actions by individual states, the era saw the first amendments to the U.S. Constitution in decades. Presidents Abraham Lincoln and his successor Andrew Johnson, who was vice president until Lincoln's assassination, both took moderate positions designed to bring the South back into the Union as quickly as possible, while radical Republicans in Congress sought stronger measures to upgrade the rights of African Americans, including the 14th Amendment. Lincoln's last speeches show that he was leaning towards supporting the enfranchisement of all freedmen, whereas Johnson was opposed. Johnson's interpretation of Lincoln's policy prevailed until the congressional elections of 1886. It's important here to note, and without getting too political, that while the Republican Party and the Democratic Party were both in existence during this time, it's fair to say that in the intervening 150 years, their positions have switched on just about everything. The Republicans, the party of Lincoln, had been in power as the country fought the Civil War. The Republican base was mainly in the North, and now, after the war, they were the party most intent on using the power of the federal government to reshape the South and Southern culture by force and by legislative power away from being a slave-holding society and economy. They were fiercely on the side of the recently freed slaves, and determined to ensure their full civil rights and full participation within a new South. Not exactly the small-government, tax-hating, mainly white power base of the 21st century Republican Party. The Democratic Party of this era had a base among Catholics, poor farmers, and people who favored hard money, free trade, and other free market policies. They hated government spending, and in the South, they ran a one-party system that took 80% or more of the vote in most states. Wherever they were, Democrats tended to campaign as the more populist, rougher-around-the-edges party. Not exactly the urban, left-coast, tax-and-spend, social-justice liberals one tends to think of when you think of today's Democratic Party. So, when Republicans gained a majority in Congress in 1866, an activist wing of the party took control of Reconstruction and moved much more radically than Lincoln or Johnson had been prepared to. They passed the 14th Amendment, removed former Confederates from positions of power in the South, and enfranchised the freedmen. A Republican coalition came to power in nearly all the southern states and set out to transform society by setting up a free labor economy using the U.S. Army and the Freedmen's Bureau. The Bureau protected the legal rights of freedmen, negotiated labor contracts, and set up schools and churches for them. 
Thousands of Northerners came south as missionaries, teachers, businessmen, and politicians. Hostile whites in the South called them carpetbaggers. In early 1866, Congress passed the Freedmen's Bureau and Civil Rights Bill and sent them to Johnson for his signature. The first bill extended the life of the bureaus, originally established as a temporary organization, while the second defined all persons born in the United States as national citizens with equality before the law. Johnson found these measures too radical, and said that they imposed too many conditions and restrictions to reunion on former Confederates and Confederate states. So he vetoed the bills. Congress, however, overrode his veto, making the Civil Rights Act the first major bill in the history of the United States to become law through an override of a presidential veto. The radicals in the House of Representatives, frustrated by Johnson's behavior, filed impeachment charges. Johnson's opposition to congressional reconstruction policies and his criticism of Congress were the chief reasons for the attempt to impeach him, but the official charge brought against him was a violation of the Tenure of Office Act for removing Secretary of War Stanton from Cabinet because of the man's support of Reconstruction policies. By a single-vote margin in the trial, President Johnson was able to remain in office and finish his term. Yet the ensuing stalemate between him and Congress made speedy or simple reconciliation of the once-divided nation virtually impossible. So, on Christmas Day, 1868, in one of his final official acts as president, Andrew Johnson declared a general amnesty for all who had supported the Confederacy by fighting against the Union. Elected in 1868, Republican President Ulysses S. Grant supported Congressional Reconstruction and enforced the protection of African Americans in the South through the use of the Enforcement Acts passed by Congress. Grant used the Enforcement Acts to combat the Ku Klux Klan, which was essentially wiped out, although a new incarnation of the Klan eventually would again come to national prominence in the 1920s. Grant, however, was unable to resolve the escalating tensions inside the Republican Party between Northerner and those Republicans originally hailing from the South. Meanwhile, Redeemers, self-styled conservatives, in close cooperation with a faction of the Democratic Party, strongly opposed Reconstruction. They alleged widespread corruption by the carpetbaggers, excessive state spending, and ruinous taxes. Meanwhile, public support for Reconstruction policies, requiring continued military occupation and supervision of the South, faded in the North, largely due to concerns over the financial panic of 1873. The Democrats, who strongly opposed Reconstruction, regained control of the House of Representatives in 1874, in 1877, as part of a congressional bargain to elect Republican Rutherford B. Hayes as president following the close 1876 presidential election, U.S. Army troops were removed from the South, ending Reconstruction and allowing Democrats to violently suppress Republican voters in order to take power. Reconstruction was a significant chapter in the history of the civil rights movement in the United States and in economic history. After Reconstruction ended, in effect rejected by the South, white Southerners succeeded in re-establishing legal and political dominance over blacks through violence, intimidation, and discrimination. Former slaves were stripped of political power and voting rights, and were left economically disadvantaged. From 1890 to 1908, Southern states passed new constitutions and laws that disenfranchised most blacks and tens of thousands of poor whites with new voter registration and electoral rules. 
when establishing new requirements such as subjectively administered literacy tests, in some states they used grandfather clauses to enable illiterate whites to still vote. Those laws effectively blocked over 90% of African Americans from voting. While slavery would remain illegal, the otherwise failure of Reconstruction was a catastrophe for the African American population of the South, a catastrophe whose legacy continues to today. After the Civil War, the South remained heavily rural and was, as mentioned earlier, much poorer than the North or the West. In the South, Reconstruction brought major changes in agricultural practices too. The most significant of these was sharecropping, where tenant farmers shared up to half of their crops with landowners in exchange for seed and essential supplies. About 80% of the black farmers and 40% of white ones lived under this system after the Civil War. Most sharecroppers were locked into a cycle of debt from which the only hope of escape was increased planting. This led to the overproduction of cotton and tobacco, and thus to declining prices and income, soil exhaustion, and poverty among both landowners and tenants. White Southerners showed a reluctance to move north or to move to the few cities in the south, so the number of small farms proliferated, and they became smaller as the population grew. There was little cash in circulation because most farmers operated on credit accounts from local merchants and paid off their debts at cotton harvest time in the fall. Although there were small country churches everywhere, there were only a few dilapidated elementary schools. Apart from private academies, there were very few high schools until 1920s. Conditions were marginally better in newer areas, especially in Texas and Central Florida, with the deepest poverty in South Carolina, Mississippi, and Arkansas. The vast majority of African Americans lived in the South, and racial segregation and outward signs of inequality were everywhere and were rarely challenged. Blacks who violated the color lines were liable to expulsion or lynching. Every southern state and city passed Jim Crow laws that were in effect between the late 19th century and 1964 when they were abolished by Congress. They mandated segregation in all public facilities, such as stores and streetcars, with a supposedly separate but equal status for blacks. In reality, this led to treatment and accommodations that were dramatically inferior to those provided for white Americans, systematizing a number of economic, educational, and social disadvantages. Schools for blacks were far fewer and poorly supported by taxpayers, although northern philanthropies and churches kept opening dozens of academies and small colleges. During the Gilded Age, many new social movements took hold in the United States. Women's political activism was among them, and became more pronounced after 1865, due in part to women's involvement in the abolitionist movement during the Civil War. Seeking greater personal equality, women fought for access to higher education, entry into professions, and involvement in social reform activities outside the home. And it worked. Women found that following the war, avenues opened for them for work outside the home. A growing number of women went to college after 1865, and women's political and reform organizations grew in number. Many young women worked as domestic servants or in shops and factories until marriage, then typically became full-time housewives. However, black, Irish, and Swedish women often continued working as household servants after marriage to help make ends meet. When husbands operated a small shop or restaurant, women could find employment there. 
Outside business opportunities were rare, unless it was a matter of a widow taking over her late husband's small business or opening up a boarding house of her own. However, the rapid acceptance of the sewing machine opened up new careers for women running their own small dressmaking shops. In light industries, such as textiles, thousands of young, unmarried Irish and French-Canadian women worked in northeastern textile mills. Food processing, such as canning, also employed large numbers of female workers. Coming from poor families, these jobs meant upward social mobility, more money, and made the women more of a catch for a prospective husband. After 1860, as the larger cities opened to department stores, middle-class women did most of the shopping and were increasingly served by young middle-class women clerks. Career women were few. One profession that was open to women was teaching. Once a heavily male job, teaching was a way for a woman to hold a prestigious, if poorly paying job, one which would establish her in the middle class. Nursing schools also accepted women, but medical schools remained nearly all male. There were, of course, individual exceptions. In Illinois in 1868, the Chicago Legal News was launched by lawyer Myra Colby Bradwell. In 1869, the first woman was admitted to the Iowa Bar. The following year, both the Utah and Wyoming territories granted women the right to vote. When her husband died, Lydia Moss Bradley inherited $500,000. Shrewd investments doubled that sum, and she later became president of her husband's old bank in Peoria, Illinois, working from home to handle banking business. In 1897, she founded Bradley University in Peoria, putting her name alongside men like Johns Hopkins, Cornell, Purdue, Vanderbilt, Stanford, Rice, and Duke, who had all used their fortunes to immortalize themselves with namesake universities. The sisters Victoria Woodhull and Tennessee Claflin were the first women to operate a brokerage firm on Wall Street. They would later be among the first women to found a newspaper in the United States, Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly, which began publication in 1870. It promoted a range of topics from women's rights to legal prostitution. Many female abolitionists were disappointed that the 15th Amendment did not extend voting rights to them, and so they remained active in politics. Many women joined the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the WCTU, in an attempt to make America moral again, chiefly by banning the production, sale, and consumption of alcohol. To alcohol! The cause of, and solution to, all of life's problems. Often, the WCTU women also took up the issue of women's suffrage, which had lain dormant since mid-century. In New York City in 1868, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton began publishing a women's rights newspaper called The Revolution. In 1869, they founded the National Women's Suffrage Association, one of two major suffrage associations formed then as part of a split in the women's movement. By 1890, however, the split was formally healed when their organization merged with the rival American Women's Suffrage Association to form the National American Women's Suffrage Association, with Anthony as its driving force. On November 5, 1872, Susan B. Anthony and nearly 50 other women in Rochester, New York, attempted to vote in the presidential election. Fifteen of them convinced the election inspectors to allow them to cast ballots, but the rest were turned back. 
There had been earlier cases of women attempting to vote, and even some cases of success, but the reaction of the authorities had been muted. When Anthony voted, however, her case became a national controversy. Anthony was arrested two weeks after the election by a U.S. deputy marshal and charged with illegal voting. The other 14 women were also arrested, but released pending the outcome of Anthony's trial. Anthony went on the offensive, speaking in all 29 towns and villages of Monroe County, New York, where her trial was to be held. She argued that women were citizens, persons before the law, and that as such the 14th Amendment gave them the right to vote. Her speech was also printed in a local newspaper and widely distributed. Worried that Anthony's speeches would influence the potential jury pool, the district attorney arranged for the trial to be moved to the federal circuit court in a neighboring county. And not surprisingly, Anthony then went on a speaking tour of every village in that county, too. The trial began in June 1873 and was closely followed by the national press. At the time, there was a rule in common law that prevented criminal defendants in federal court from testifying, which I find really surprising. The judge in the case used this to refuse Susan B. Anthony the right to speak in her own defense until after the verdict had been delivered. On the second day of the trial, after both sides had presented their cases, the judge directed the jury to deliver a guilty verdict. On the third day of the trial, Hunt asked Anthony, finally, whether she now had anything to say. She responded with, quote, The most famous speech in the history of the agitation for women's suffrage, according to Anne D. Gordon, a historian of the women's movement. Repeatedly ignoring the judge's order to stop talking and sit down, Anthony protested what she called, quote, this high-handed outrage upon my citizens' rights. You have trampled underfoot every vital principle of our government. My natural rights, my civil rights, my political rights, my judicial rights, are all alike ignored. She railed against the judge for his handling of the trial, and argued that even if he had allowed the jury to discuss the case, she still would have been denied a trial by a jury of her peers because women were not allowed to be jurors. When she was sentenced to pay a fine of $100, Anthony replied, I shall never pay a dollar of your unjust penalty. And she never did. If the judge had ordered her to be imprisoned until she paid the fine, Anthony could have appealed her case to the Supreme Court. So instead, the judge announced he would not order her taken into custody, meaning that Anthony essentially was out of legal options. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1875 put an end to the strategy of trying to achieve women's suffrage through the court system by ruling in Minor v. Happersett that, quote, the Constitution of the United States does not confer the right of suffrage upon anyone. At that point, the NWSA decided to pursue the far more difficult strategy of campaigning for a constitutional amendment to guarantee voting rights for women. Victoria Woodhull, mentioned a moment ago, was also politically active in the early 1870s and was nominated as the first woman candidate for the presidency of the United States in 1872. She was the candidate from the Equal Rights Party, whose platform was based on women's suffrage and equal rights. Her running mate was abolitionist leader Frederick Douglass. Her arrest on obscenity charges a few days before the election for publishing an account of the alleged adulterous affair between the prominent minister Henry Ward Beecher and Elizabeth Tilton, added to the sensational coverage of her candidacy, 
During that same presidential election in 1872, the Republican Party platform included a reference to support of women's suffrage, though nothing would come of it, despite the fact that Republican incumbent Ulysses S. Grant won that year. I've mentioned earlier that the Gilded Age overlaps with certain other historical periods, such as Reconstruction or the Victorian era in England. Among these overlaps is what is called the Third Great Awakening, which was a period of religious activism in American history from the late 1850s to the 20th century. There were obviously two earlier such periods, but we won't get into them here because they are definitely beyond the scope of our podcast, which has already been going on for quite a while. Don't worry, we're almost done. The Third Great Awakening was an era when mainline Protestant denominations, especially the Methodist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Congregational churches, grew rapidly in numbers, wealth, and education levels, moving away from their frontier origins and into the towns and cities. The Awakening was interrupted in many places, and especially in the South, by the Civil War, but resumed afterward. The aftermath of the Civil War, in fact, stimulated revivals, and in the South, the Baptists especially began to grow and expand dramatically as a denomination. Due mainly to the large-scale immigration we spoke of earlier, Catholicism became the largest single Christian denomination in the United States, though it still remained a minority religion in terms of total adherence in the overall population, dwarfed as it was by the total number of Protestants in America. And though they were only a third of the total Catholic population, so a minority within a minority, beginning at this time, the Irish came to dominate the hierarchy of the Catholic Church in America, producing most of the bishops, college presidents, and leaders of Catholic charitable organizations. The Third Great Awakening was also a time of religious innovation and experimentation, both within Christianity and without. Numerous new groups and sects emerged, including the Holiness Movement and the Nazarene Movement, Theosophy, with its links to the growing Spiritualist Movement, and Christian Science. A growing movement called Muscular Christianity began to find favor within England and the United States. It was characterized by a belief in patriotic duty, manliness, athleticism, self-sacrifice, and, quote, the expulsion of all that is effeminate, un-English, and I guess un-American too, and excessively intellectual, end quote. Not exactly a blessed-are-the-meek version of Christianity. Probably its best-known product and adherent was Teddy Roosevelt, who embodied all of the ideals of the movement. All major denominations of Christianity expanded their missionary activity at this time, both within the United States and around the world. Catholics and Lutherans set up parochial schools to train the next generation of the faithful, and the larger denominations set up numerous colleges, hospitals, and charities. Followers of the New Awakening promoted the idea of the social gospel, which gave rise to organizations such as the YMCA and the American branch of the Salvation Army. The social gospel affected Protestant denominations most strongly, influenced by what is called post-millennial theology, which, without getting too technical, is the belief that the second coming of Christ would happen not after a great fiery apocalypse, but rather after mankind had reformed and perfected the entire earth. The Gilded Age plutocracy came under harsh attack from the social gospel preachers, and with reformers in the Progressive Era, which followed on the heels of the Gilded Age. 
These reformers became involved with issues of child labor, compulsory elementary education, and the protection of women from exploitation in factories. The majority of mainline Protestants in the North supported the Republican Party, which was at this time, remember, the more activist and progressive of the two parties, and they urged Republicans to endorse prohibition and social reforms. Across the nation, the so-called dries crusaded in the name of religion for prohibition. The Women's Christian Temperance Union, remember them, mobilized Protestant women from social crusades against not only liquor, but also pornography and prostitution, and sparked the demand for women's suffrage. And with that, I think we're all done. Oh, I could keep going about all sorts of things. I cut a whole section about the growth of America's new pastime, baseball, during this era, because we're already way over time. But just go watch the first two episodes of Ken Burns' documentary on baseball, which cover the game through the end of the Gilded Age. It's on Netflix. You'll love it. So, thank you again for your patience with the delay in getting this episode out. After this, I plan to be back on track with the every-other-week schedule we kept before the new year. Next time, we'll see what became of Tesla after he parted ways with Edison, the founding of his first companies, his continuing struggles to be a savvy businessman in the cutthroat Gilded Age, a look at what Tesla called the darkest time in his life, and the renewed success that Tesla found in the late 1880s leading up to his breakthrough speech to the American Institute of Electrical Engineers in May 1888. It was with this speech that the American electrical establishment sat up and took notice of Tesla and his polyphase ideas for the first time. And it was this speech that coincided with the first volleys in what would come to be remembered as the War of the Currents. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. If you're enjoying the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend who you think might enjoy it, or share a link to the show on your social media. I hope you'll go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews we get, the more chance that people who might not otherwise encounter the show will see it and subscribe. Thanks for your help. Past episodes, as well as show notes, can be found on our website, www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list with updates and alerts about the show, links to articles, and other stuff related to Tesla, his life, and times. You can keep up to date about our show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Cottage. still here it's over go home oh